episode 58 of At the Bet Parks Presents. Stick to Hockey Live. Anthony DeMarco going to join us in a moment. Fruit sounds a little froggy here today. Uh, but uh, get the new Bet Parks app. It's a great time to get it because it's a great time if you have not uh, gotten involved in it to kind of get your feet under you. Now, it's easy to use, fast to use, easy to deposit, easy to get your money out. It's faster to win than ever before. Now, why is now a good time? Here's why. Uh, because you have a ton coming up to get your action in on just around the corner. Football, college and pro, just around the corner. Hockey season, just around the corner. I'll even bring up the countdown app. Uh, hoops, college and pro, just around the corner. It's really not that far off. So now's a great time to grab the Bet Parks app and get involved. Check out. The wagering you can do on baseball, player performances, same game parlays, live in-game betting, props, player performances, you name it. It is all there for you and simple to use. For example, the NHL season just 75 days away. So check it out. Download the Bet Parks app today. Easy to sign up, fun to use, faster to win than ever before. And right now, all new and existing users can use the promo code Jason750, Jason750, and that will get you a risk-free bet up to $750. So download the Bet Parks app today and use that promo code Jason750. Again, up to $750 risk-free bet. Terms and conditions do apply. Download the Bet Parks app. Do you need to be present in Pennsylvania or New Jersey? Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. All right, let's get on with the episode and bring in right now, north of the border, from thefourthperiod.com. It is Anthony DeMarco joining Bet Parks Presents Stick Docky Live. What's going on, Ant? Not much, buddy. Uh, dog days of summer, I would say, right now for hockey, especially after the Kachuk bombshell. But uh, not a whole lot to talk about, eh? In terms of yeah. breaking news, it's crazy. You know, you get a you get a trade like Kachuk that happens. I think it was the twenty second of July. You just don't expect to get player movement to that degree at that time. I I, th- I guess the Kachuk trade happened. What on? Was it a Friday? Was it, it was a late was it Friday night. It was like it was teetering on midnight. I'm pretty sure because I was at a buddy's place. And we were up like fairly late and I opened my phone and it's like almost midnight. I'm just like, uh, oh, not Keith Kachuk, Matt, Matthew Kachuk just got dealt for Jonathan Huberto, Mackenzie Weger prospect, first round pick. It's rare to see deals like that late in the summer. And like the only thing that I could think of, and this was a signing, it wasn't really a, a trade, was when Ilya Kovalchuk re-signed with the New Jersey Devils late in july and then the flyers subsequently traded simo Gagne to the tampa bay lightning that's like the only thing that i could compare it to yeah that was 2000 the summer of 2010 i want to th- say exactly right, right after yeah. they went to the cup final yeah and kachuk or not kachuk rather um kovalchuk did he sign a 17 year deal then is that what that was yeah, that lucrative deal that ended up getting like mutually Walt. terminated. Yeah, it was ridiculous. But who could have foreseen that coming, right? Who yeah. could have foreseen that blowing up in everyone's face? Well, thank God the NHL got rid of that like ability to do a 17 year deal to spread out an aid. Like that that's ridiculous. Yeah. Although it, like, you look at Carter, he finished his. <laughs> did anyone finish 12, his aside from Jeff Carter? Um, Shea Weber didn't. Um yeah. I mean, he's going to finish it, but not playing. Uh, no, I don't. I don't know that there are other guys that signed those, you know, 10, 10 plus year deals that actually finished them as a player and then went on to sign a new deal. Did, well, Suter and Parise, one. Suter and Parise just got bought out a year ago yeah. from their contracts, and they're still playing. Yeah, so. and they almost ended up here too. They they were a huge target here. 
that summer of 2012, it almost felt like the summer of like just swing and misses, right? Like just going yeah. up to the bat and just continual strikeouts. And like, it, it's really weird if you revisit that summer, like if any of those things would have happened, like if Weber would have come here on the offer sheet, if Suter and Parise would have showed up, like how much of the trajectory of this team would have changed over, let's say the 2010s. Yeah. You know, the funny thing, Bill and I talked about that because it was the anniversary of the uh, Shea Weber offer sheet last weekend. And, you know, you look at it in, in the near term, it would have been really good for them. They were a really good team right then. Yeah. You know, 2012, a Yager comes in and you have that great year with Giroux, Yager and Hartnell. And it's some good pieces, but they just didn't have that guy back on the blue line. Because when you lost Pronger suddenly like that, it was a huge hole. And it's yeah. weird, like Pronger's injury that ended his career wasn't like degenerative knees or anything like that. It was just that freak eye and, and injury with the concussion. It was Kaju, right, who hit him in the eye with the I stick? so, yeah. Yeah, it's just crazy to think about how good that team looked. And 2011-2012, especially after the Richards and Carter trades, how like they got younger, they swapped out two forwards to bring in four new forwards. You had Giroux explode onto the scene as a premier NHL forward. Yager comes in, and at the time, you're bringing in a guy who would theoretically contend for a Vesna for a few years and Yulia Brzgalov. And then as soon as Pronger went down, it's just like the entire plan came unglued. Like, And it was just so crazy to see how one guy was the linchpin to the entire operation. Yeah, you never know, like, in business, and if you're running a company in sports, you never know which piece of the puzzle is going to collapse the house of cards sometimes. And Pronger was that piece that collapsed the house of cards. Yeah. You know, it just all came tumbling down after that. And they went into this murky period of, you know, with, with Hextall and, you know, because eventually Homer resigns thinking he's been kind of blackballed because of the Weber offer offer sheet and the way they structured that. And maybe he was, I will we'll say one thing about Paul Holmgren. He had balls big enough to carry in a dump truck the way he operated. Yeah. I, there, I think it's like a popular narrative to kind of shit on Holmgren because the end of his tenure is kind of what started this deep, dark downward spiral that we've come to know over cap the last hell, nine right? or 10 years. Pardon me. The cap hell. Exactly, the cap hell. And you know what? The last two calendar years, it was time for him to go. I don't even think maybe it was just because of him getting blackballed. I just think he was chasing something that was too far off the rails. Like, yeah, I, like, I think that was part of the owner, too, was chasing that. For sure. Yeah. For sure, because you're trying to get back to 2010. That seems so close, but in reality, it was just so far. Yeah. And that, to me, is just like, hey, every guy has like his ex- expiration date. But if you look at the lion's share of his tenure from when he got hired in, what was it, October 06 to when he left in 2014, shave off those last two seasons, he was a hell of a fun GM. Like, I just remember that first calendar year, like in-season, bringing guys like Coburn and a young defensive like Lassie Kukinen didn't really work out, but still brings him in, sets up your starting goaltender with Martin Biron makes the trade for Forsberg, who later packages those assets to bring in Hartnell and Tiemann Like, all these moves that he made, very proactive GM, wasn't scared. And, like, look, obviously he was a bit of a product of his time. He had an owner that wanted to win arguably more than anybody. 
He had, you know, two guys or three guys that his predecessor drafted in Giroux, Carter, and Richards to work with and just kind of build around them. But, uh, you know, I think everyone would agree that over the last 20 years, he was their best general manager. Yeah, and the results were pretty darn good, too, and exciting hockey as well. But you're right, that's the narrative to shit on him. And that's kind of where I want to start on this episode because, you know, I, I saw, who was it, um, at Flyer, Flyers Puck Sauce, I think, tweeted it out. Let me see if I can find this tweet from him. I thought it was, like, dead on. And because, you know, the narrative over the past couple of years is, Giroux's not a leader, blah, blah, blah. And all of those things. Here it is. He said, <clears throat> excuse me. He said, Giroux is a bad captain and is the reason the Flyers suck, has been replaced by Couturier sucks and has a horrible con- contract. Good job, Flyers fans. And that's from <laughs> at Flyers Puck Sauce. I saw that tweet. I go, that's a great fucking tweet. Because that was like the thing, like, oh, rip off the sea, you know, that whole thing. And, yeah. and it has been because re- there's always a whipping boy and there's always one of those narratives about a player. Like Andrew McDonald was whipping boy. Now maybe it's Rasmus Ristolainen, you know, or maybe it's going to be Tony D'Angelo. I don't know. Maybe it's multiple guys and and guys don't know who to whip right now because, or fans don't because um, they're so angry still. And, but the Couturier slander uh, to me, Ant, is people convened, like, it's almost like they got that thing in the matrix that, that stick that erases your hard drive of your brain and your memory as to what the guy was before the last year and he was injured. Stunning. Yeah, like, look, I'll be frank. I didn't think they should have re-signed Sean Couturier. That was just my... Yeah, yeah, I, I, because this is how I looked at it, Jay, is that I thought that this team was going to end up in this position that they were, like, a year and a half ago. I said that they're barreling towards a a point where they're going to have to go for, I didn't know the word at the time, but ultimately a stabilization year. Yeah, And I'm saying that, like, what if, hypothetically, you would have traded Sean Couturier on an expiring contract with Claude Giroux at the trade deadline this past year? What kind of assets could you have brought in? What this year, then, well, his new contract hasn't kicked in. You mean this no, I, I mean the place? Yeah, 2022. Okay. Let's say you, you hadn't re-signed him last summer and that you had two guys in Giroux and Couturier on expiring contracts and you go into the trade deadline and you're dangling both of them. Yeah. And Katori doesn't have trade restrictions on his last deal. Yeah. So he will, or trade protection. So imagine what teams would have paid up for him. But all that being said, you re-signed him. If you had to re-sign Sean Katori, this was the best kind of contract you could have structured. Because mm-hmm. less than $8 million for a guy who's a very high-end 2C or let's say lower-end 1C. Is that how we would agree on that? Mm-hmm. More or less. I think that's very par for the course. I think that he's a guy that, like you said, when healthy, is a dominant two-way centerman. Leave something to be desired a bit offensively, but he is the kind of player that makes people around him better. We've seen that with Travis Konechny. We've seen it with Oscar Lindblom 100%. And I think that people now are just latching on to anything possible that's negative. And it's sometimes leading to things that are irrational to talk about. Like there are 50 other things that I have to that I take issue with on this team before I could get to Sean Couturier and even his contract, because if let's say in five years from now, the cap has gone up seven, eight, nine million dollars. No one really cares about it anymore. And the other part about this is and you could group Kevin Hayes in with this as well. 
and why wouldn't people bitch about Kevin Hayes? I just have no time for it. It's like this team has no centerman, both on the roster and in their system. They needed to sign Kevin Hayes in 2019, and they still need Kevin Hayes three years later. And I have no issue with either of those guys making the salaries that they do. The only issue I had with Sean Couturier was saying, like, is this team in a position where they should be re-signing a 29-year-old to an eight-year contract, a guy who has dealt with a lot of injuries, or should they have been positioning themselves to trade him for assets to try and build for the future? But in terms of the player as a vacuum and his contract, I don't really have that much of an issue with it. His contract in next year under next year's salary cap is 9.4% of the cap. It's a low number. I mean, it's 7.75. And he hasn't, you know, he has had some injuries at points in his career, but really since 2017-18, he hasn't. He played 82 in 17-18. He had 76 points. In 18-19, in he played 80 games, had 76 points. In 1920, he played all 69 games before the pause, 59 points. In 2021, 20, or the 2021 season, 45 games of what, 54 was that year? 56, or 56 yeah. game season? Yeah, something but, like that. But, but I think a bunch of those games, I, th- I believe that seven of those games were COVID protocol. And then last year, obviously, he played 29 games. So he has not been injury prone since he's been put into that top level role. And over that time, it, there's the, even, even last year, I'll put his numbers in there from last year 305 games. He's got 110 goals, 159 assists, 269 points in those 305 games. And he's a, a top face-off guy in the league, one of the best. One won a Selkie and came in second for a Selkie. So this slander of him, like I got this, this string of tweets from a guy because I had said on Flyers Daily, Bill and I were talking about it, that he's in that conversation with Patrice Bergeron and with uh, Andre Kopitar. And a guy tweeted me and said, basically, am I hearing this? He's more Ryan Nugent Hopkins than he is those guys. So this guy at Baker Wheeler won on Twitter, and he did some great research work here for me. In the four seasons from 18 to 21, the only centers in the NHL with more even strength points than Couturier, McDavid, Matthews, Dreisaitl, McKinnon, Barkoff, and Shifley. Nugent Hopkins scored at a middle six rate at 5 on 5 and it isn't remotely as good defensively. Let's take it further. Baker Wheeler said this, every stat and metric has him with Bergeron and Kopitar and far better than Ryan Nugent Hopkins. And again, those four seasons scored 30-plus goal and 75-plus point rate and was top 15 in centers and points and seventh among all centers in five-on-five points. And again, he's much better at D than Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Bergeron over those five years, 0.98 points per game, Five-on-five scoring, 26th in the NHL. Couturier, 0.88 points per game. Five-on-five scoring, 32nd in the NHL. Kopitar, 0.89 points per game. Five-on-five scoring, 113th. And Nugent Hopkins, 0.81 points per game. 187th, five-on-five scoring. Not to mention he's a Selkie winner and a Selkie runner-up. So to me, like kind of shitting on his, well, go, oh, he played top line. So did all those guys. And Bergeron played with Marshawn and Pasternak. Nugent Hopkins has played with some really good talent out there. Kopitar, not as much great talent because they've shed a lot of it. But he is absolute. that's where he has been prior and including even the injury year. 
Yeah, like, I wouldn't say that he's more Nugent Hopkins. Like, I don't put him on the same level as Kopitar and Bergeron, personally. I don't. I put him a notch below. Like, I've always said Sean Couturier kind of falls in my I think he's ahead of Kopitar now. Yeah, maybe, maybe not now. Career, but yeah, at Kopitar in his prime, but Kopitar over the last five years has not been that. Yeah, no, Kopitar in his prime was probably like a borderline top five center in the NHL. And, I, and I've yeah. always put Sean Couturier in like the... 12 to 16 17 range among centers in the nhl just because and i remember um uh, charlie o'connor's always said this is that you know he's just not the kind of guy that if you're game planning against the flyers you're just okay that's the guy we got to shut down mm-hmm. and i don't think he's an overly he's dangerous scary. yeah he's not scary his transition numbers have always just been very like above average but nothing spectacular his offensive metrics are like especially on the power play nothing like incredible but he is an elite defensive centerman and i just think that he's a guy that let's say best case scenario is a point per game centerman which is very good and as elite elite defensive center that's a good thing because yeah it's a very you're so plus and it's a very good thing. And I think the the issue that I've taken more about plugging along with Sean Katori is more situational than anything, because I say, OK, so you have this guy who's elite defensively, but let's just say slightly above average offensively. Would that be more or less fair to he, say? He's more than that. I mean, his five on five numbers are 32nd in the league. Yeah. So, but I mean, you got that. That's pretty good when you consider who he's been playing. I mean, he played with Giroux, so he did play with some talent, but. I mean, when you look at, I mean, the the five on five numbers are really relevant because ninety five percent of the game is played five on five. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. So that's the big that's the big reason why five on five is so important. Oh, it is, it, it, and it really kind of gives you context to how much of an impact he has on a game on his own, right? Because yeah. you could be an elite power play guy, and look, points are points, of course, yeah. but like the five on five kind of sheds light to well, how situational does it have to be for you to succeed? I think for Sean Couturier, I'm saying, like, is he a good enough center, <clears throat> pardon me, to be on a top line with Farabee and Konechny? And it's the same thing with Travis Konechny, is that do I think that Travis Konechny in the right situation could be a first-line player? Absolutely. But as a standalone player, is he a first-line guy? We've he's not a pillar first-line guy. I totally agree with you. But, it, but I look at Ryan O'Reilly. Like, he's a top-line center. Like, the St. Louis Blues are kind of an anomaly because – they don't have all these first overall like somebody tweeted me the other day and said you have to have multiple first overall picks or top of the draft picks to to win a Stanley Cup and there's a couple anomalies and you look at like obviously Pittsburgh had that obviously you look at Washington they had that you look at teams the Kings didn't really have the top overall but they won two obviously Chicago did but then you look at more recently as well some of the other teams Tampa multiple top of the draft picks, Colorado, same thing. St. Louis, no. And maybe, you know, the Kings, no. Yeah. And I, I, and I could tell you with certainty, that's a model St. Louis. That is that the Flyers model themselves after. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that Ryan O'Reilly and Hexy really loved Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah. Which is crazy that he He passed up on him. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, especially given when look, Tage Thompson is turning into a hell of a player. So that trade is not looking as bad. Yeah. So that's per- important to say, but it's just crazy that at that time it was clearly not that big of a haul for Ryan O'Reilly. And look, I, I think that it's fair to put Sean Couturier in the same tier as Ryan O'Reilly. 
I would say Katori is probably better defensively and mm-hmm. Riley is a bit better offensively. But if you want to jumble it all together, they're about the same player. I think that the difference here is, is that look at what O'Reilly has been insulated with. Like when they won the cup, they had Braden Shannon, Tyler Bozak behind them. That's better than Kevin Hayes and Scott Lawton or Morgan Frost, you know? Yeah. Ryan O'Reilly. And that matters. Got, eh? Yeah, I agree. Pardon me? And, and that matters too, because it, it speaks to matchups. So I totally agree with you. Of course. And like you even look at, let's say the wingers, like David Perron, uh, Vlad Tarasenko, like mm-hmm. these guys that have been historically better than, let's say, who are the Flyers' best wingers? Like Joel Farabee and Travis Konechny at this yeah. point? Cam Atkinson, maybe? And that's why I say, like, when I have issues. check for a period, too. Voracek Giroux when he was on his game yeah. like and I just think that it's overall the situation that it's not Sean Couturier in a vacuum that I've taken issue with it's just like do you have enough around him both behind him at centerman uh, with Hayes and whoever and on the wing to help him succeed and I think that it is important when you have an aging player like this and look there are anomalies like Bergeron has continued to you know shoulder a heavy load and whatnot but I think it's important to have guys to help take the load off of these guys that so they age better. And yeah. I think with the Flyers, you know, you have Hayes, and I like Kevin Hayes, and if he's healthy, like, I think people shit on him for no reason, personally. But it's just like, who's going to take over for both those guys when they start getting into their early 30s? And look, maybe Morgan Frost is that guy. I have my doubts, but hey, maybe he is. Maybe Cutter Gauthier gets here earlier than expected and he is that guy yeah i just i'm just wondering if like are they going to pile too much responsibility on sean katori to not only continue to you know shoulder a bunch of minutes as a centerman but then be asked to drag up the games of let's say joel faraby and travis connectney and whoever's playing on his wing yeah I, I do agree with that and i think the point you made that i agree with most is the fact that you know he's not a player that is excitable that you know the other team goes Oh my God, like he's like they, he scares the shit out of him because he can go out and just take over a game with a super skilled player. It's not what he is. He's a really good player, but he's not a dynamic player. And to the same extent, and I think some people sometimes, you know, defense in, in hockey is not something that's lauded. You know, you want goal scorers. It's, I always say this too playmakers are never valued like goal scorers. And oftentimes in a player like Drew, the, the reason why the guy scored the goal had way more to do with Giroux than it did the guy who scored the goal. <laughs> For sure. This setup, right? So, but those guys you go, oh, it's just an assist. Well, <laughs> it's not just an assist. <laughs> like the assist is a lot of times is more important than the actual goal. And even a secondary assist can do that as well. But um, they still obviously need a dynamic offensive player. And, you know, Atkinson's not a, at this point in his career is not a dynamic offensive player. They don't have that. I don't know if Frost will be that. That I think it's a big ask if we're saying, hey, one of the question marks is can Frost be a dynamic offensive contributor this year? I, I talked to him the other day, um, and he's been back home and he's working with a shooting coach and he's working on you know his explosiveness. I think the conversation about Frost working on I got to put on muscle so I can. I, I think those are kind of past because he has put on that muscle. But I, he did say that at the end of last season and the way he played defensively, which led him on a lot of plays offensively, gave him a lot of confidence. So I think he's coming in pretty confident this year to really have that breakout NHL season. He needs it. And he just signed that, that restricted free agent contract. 
Yeah, no, and he finished very well last year, let's say from the trade deadline on, like even his underlying numbers would suggest that. Yeah. And I do think a lot of that had to go with him finding like stability in the lineup. Him and Owen Tippett kind of rode shotgun with one another. And I, <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken, I think nobody generated more chances than Owen Tippett in you know that final stretch run. Yeah. And they really kind of found a niche together. And I think that when you go into this this season, you start with those two guys and either like a Scott Lawton or a Noah Cates playing on their left wing, like a mucker and grinder type of guy. I just yeah. see Scott Lawton as kind of like the prototypical guy to play on that line. But maybe with Joel Farabio, it could cause you to like elevate Lawton up the lineup a bit. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I think Noah, Noah Cates is that guy. But yes, Morgan Frost is a guy that possesses, possesses a skill set positionally and just in terms of his raw talent of everything the flyers really need they need a creative guy who can play down the middle and generate offense but to this point save for that stretch run at the end of last year you know there's been a lot to be desired with morgan frost now i think that he's coming into camp there's nobody blocking him we know that this season is going to be heavily about evaluating the talent that they have you know, you've talked about it, shit or get off the pot time for a lot of these guys here. Yeah. And Morgan Frost is kind of like a, a microcosm of the entire situation in Philadelphia. Like, I don't think that there's a guy with more to lose, but simultaneously more to gain this coming season than a guy like Morgan Frost. Mm, because they need, they, they need a centerman. They need an offensive uh, punch up front. And they need a guy who could do that for a long time. Like, look, it was nice to have Derek Broussard as a good stopgap last year, but he was 33. He was supposed to be the stopgap to Morgan Frost. Morgan Frost has a chance here to solidify himself a spot for the next five to 10 years if he so wants. He has a brand new coach. He seems to have found a running mate with Owen Tippett. And I think that now they've committed to him as a center. And I know a lot of people, he kind of like got pissed with Mikey O last year. But I actually like the way Mike Yo handled Morgan Frost. Because in my mind, I was saying, like, if Morgan Frost is going to come into the NHL and be a middle six winger, there is no use for him in Philadelphia. Because that is all the Flyers have, are useful yeah. middle six Redundant. wingers. Redundant. Redundant, 100%. And I thought it was really, really smart the way Mike Yo handled him. And everyone shit all over Yo last season. As he sent him down, you'd bring him up. No, it's not where it needs to be. Your game, your defensive game, send him back down, brought him back up. And now, like you said, his defensive game really worked towards the end of the year. He found chemistry with a new guy like Owen Tippett, and his game thoroughly improved. And now this year, it's a chance for Morgan Frost to finally stick in the NHL. Yeah, I, I agree. He's got opportunity in front of him. And... He's got, he's got, it's got to be that year where he just puts it all together. And I think he was a 27th overall pick, I want to say. Something in that range. 26 or 27. And, and it's time. It's time for Morgan Frost. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, put aside all of the, you know, narratives about Tony D'Angelo. And because I saw some conversation on my timeline yesterday, I didn't get involved in it because I was just too busy and I'm trying to stay off Twitter as much as possible during that's this a good down thing. period. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good thing. But, you know, a guy had said, well, anybody could play a top pair defensive D man on the Carolina Hurricanes. They were seventh last year in goals allowed, seventh rated D in the NHL. And they, they were a really good team. And he was on the top pair. Now, he was on the top pair with a really good partner, really good partner. Um, that allowed him to accentuate what he's good at and kind of mask what he's not good at. But 
it, it was a top pair on a really good team. Like that's a bona fide, that's a cup team with Rob Brindamore and the Carolina Hurricanes. And he did play a top pair there. Are people minimizing how he can fit here? And that would be myself included because I, I, I am such a firm believer that a top pair has got to be able to not prevent everything from the top line opposition night in and night out, but be able to control it and be able to minimize the damage that Bergeron's line can do or a veteran's line can do or Crosby's line can do, or the Capri's offline when you play against the Wild. You know, because you're going to face a good top line every night. Are we minimizing Tony D'Angelo in some way? And a lot of the noise is causing, you know, maybe some pollution in our minds on him? Because I'm in that faction as well. Look, I, I mean, I really like this acquisition from an on-ice perspective because, and Chuck Fletcher said as much, is that they think Tony D'Angelo is going to make them defend less. And I think that more so, more than ever now, when you're seeing how teams operate their defensive structure, is that their first pairing isn't really the one that is defending most of the time. We saw that a lot with the, um, the Nashville Predators this year, where you had Roman Yossi actually get kind of shit on by a lot of people in the analytics community because his defensive metrics were where they needed to be. And you saw that Elias Ekholm was taken. Is that his name? Matthias Ekholm. Matthias Ekholm. I get mixed up. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and he was eating a lot of those tough D zone mids. The same thing happened with the Tampa Bay lightning when, you know, everyone, you know, rightfully so sings the praises of Ryan, of uh, Victor Hedman, but then everyone was just like, yeah, but if you really look at it, like Ryan McDonough was eating a lot of those tough minutes. And I think that maybe with the Carolina Hurricanes is a bit different, but like to a lesser extent. But I think you saw that a lot with Brady Shea and uh, Brett Pesce doing mm-hmm. that in Carolina as well. And like if you look at the defensive metrics of Brett Pesce, who is arguably their best defensive defenseman aside from Jacob Slavin and Donny D'Angelo, they were kind of on par in terms of expected goals against uh, last season. And I think that what the Flyers needed on their top pair now, after two years of having either Justin Braun or Phil Myers, two guys who really couldn't move the puck, one of which in Myers, who isn't even an NHL defenseman at this point, is they needed a guy that was capable of moving the puck more than Ivan Provorov. And I said this last week, and you know, a lot of metrics would suggest it, some raw point totals would suggest it as well. I'm not saying that Provorov's better than Slavin or ever was. But you can make the case that his ceiling is Jacob Slavin, because if you look at their seasons directly compared against one another in 2019-20, there are a lot of similarities. And Provorov was a better transition defenseman than Jacob Slavin. Now, do I think that Provorov is a better defenseman than Slavin? No, but I don't think it's an asinine suggestion to say that his ceiling is Jacob Slavin. And this was all with Slavin playing with Dougie Hamilton, and Provorov playing with Matt Niskanen. And as good as Niskanen was, was he ever yeah. close to Dougie Hamilton? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And I just think that this is a really good pairing because I think Provorov, Provorov's biggest issues over the last year and a half, two years, has been that he's been forced to always be the guy to move the puck out of the defensive zone. And a lot of... 
Yeah. Yeah. It's not his strength. He's good once it gets into the neutral zone, but he's also much better when he's defending off the rush a lot of the time. So I think that now that you have a guy that can move the puck himself and it doesn't always have to be, you know, Braun breaks up, you know, a pass below the uh, below the, the hash marks and Provorov has to be the guy to get it out. I think you're going to see a very exciting top pair. I'm actually very curious to see how this is. There's a lot of people I trust who said that in the playoffs, Tony D'Angelo was arguably the best defenseman for the Carolina Hurricanes, wow. especially, especially the way that he worked the blue line. He's not nearly as bad in his own zone that a lot of people think. And a lot of these metrics that you see are based off of the last three years. And yes, Carolina, when you're a defenseman there, it is obviously a lot to do with your situation. They are a very sound, you know, puck dominant team. Yeah. But no, I, I think that this is going to be a really cool uh, experiment. And I think that this pairing is going to do a lot better than people think. Yeah, it, I, I'm really interested to see it as well. And, and obviously, this is all predicated that Ryan Ellis goes on LTIR and is not available, which um, I think a lot of us feels a fait accompli. But we'll see if that does play out. And, and I'll be interested to see it as well, because, um, you know, I did see we did see some flashes when Provorov was with Cam York, who can make that first pass out of the zone really well, exactly. even at a young age that it, those two kind of came together a little bit. And like, people will go, well, how good they look? They still got the shit kicked out of them night in and night out. Well, they, they had an, NA, an AHL roster for the most point at that time. Yeah. You have to look at, at a micro level with how players perform with other players in capsules. Cause you can't look at team result when basically most of the team was AHL at that point. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. Um, last thing, Rocky Thompson named to the coaching staff uh, spent last year with the San Jose Sharks. It was on uh, Bob Bugner's staff. They obviously got let go, I think on J- June 30th, which was a total dick move uh, by <laughs> San Jose to, to let those guys go with no time to find a gig, but he finds a gig. So the coaching staff, John Tortorella as the head coach, Brad Shaw as an associate coach spoke to him last week. And I, I really enjoyed my conversation with Brad Shaw. I think he is a sharp, like he's a really good, a, a guy to have on your bench and running that side of the ice. And then Rocky Thompson now will be uh, your offensive coach and power play coach. He's got a big ask in front of him, but how do we measure this coaching staff now that we know what it is in total? Kim Dill well, obviously remains as the goaltending coach. Yeah. And Daryl Williams here to stay as the eye in the sky, right? Yeah. I'm not mistaken. And look, I think that it is pretty cool that you have a lot of guys who have worked together. Daryl Williams worked with Torts in Vancouver and he's been with the staff now for an entire year or the team rather an entire year. Brad Shaw as well out there. Exactly. And obviously you have Shaw who spent a lot of time with uh, Torts in Columbus, you know, Rocky Thompson. I mean, it's going to be, I guess, a bit of an adventure with him. I was a bit surprised to see that. Not going to lie. But I think that maybe they're going a lot with how they could affect the, you know, the personality wise. And I think that just some stability on the offensive side of things, because last year, how many guys coached the power play? I felt yeah. like you had Michelle Terrier, Daryl Williams, uh, John Torchetti, I think, finished by the end. Brought in, yeah. And I think that just some maybe some continuity a bit for that power play will go a long, long way. Yeah. And I think that it's just important that a lot of these guys are getting a fresh, uh, a clean slate. And I'm really like we already talked about him a lot, but I'm really curious to see what a guy like Morgan Frost does. Obviously, Travis Konechny probably has the most to gain out of a new coaching staff. 
He's a guy that showed flashes of maybe being a top, a bona fide top line winger in 1920 and has slid back the other direction the last two months, two years or so. And I'm curious to see what a healthy Sean Couturier and Kevin Hayes could mean for this team. I guess the only thing that I would ask you is that, do you think it's a slam dunk that Couturier is the next captain? I don't think it's a slam dunk. I think Torts is going to make that decision. I, I think, yeah, I think that Torts is going to, you know, see how his presence affects these guys and who wants to step up into a leadership position. We know that Cam Atkinson, I, I mean, at this point in his career, should he be the captain? I would probably make him an alternate. Um, you know, I, I think it's between Couturier it's, and Hayes, and that's probably the list. I think it's between those two and maybe Lawton. Yeah. Yeah, Lawton has really stepped up in a lot of ways. And, you know, I advocated at the 2021 trade deadline to have traded him. But, I mean, you could speak to this better than me. Is his personality and his presence almost just unable to quantify on a piece of paper? Like yeah. what he means to that locker room? Yeah, I mean, he's a great guy. Um, <laughs> he, he's he's an interesting guy, but I think he just got married too. Um or just had a baby or something, but um, he, yeah, he, to me, he, his value in replacing him isn't just what he can do on the ice, but the thing is, is what he can do on the ice is a Swiss army knife. He yeah. can move up and down. He can move from the wing to center. He can kill penalties. He, he can do a lot of things. And the, I, I think with him that I looked at, I said the cost for replacement of him would have exceeded what you paid him. And we were looking at a quick rebound there from that bad year. Um, because the, the year prior, they're a team that was really good under AV, and we thought maybe they could rebound. They didn't. But, um, yeah, I, I, I was ambivalent on whether they should move him or not, but the cost per replacement for him would have been exceeded what they paid him. Yeah, I thought that maybe like they had that in-house replacement with Oscar Lindblom, aside from the fact that he can play center. like That was mm-hmm. the main difference between the two. But I always thought Lindblom's offensive ceiling was higher. And obviously things didn't work out with Oscar. I, I guess in you know retrospect, do you think that that was a good move to buy out Oscar? Because they essentially used his cap dollar to bring in Braun and Nick Deloria. Well, I mean, the Braun thing I'm fine with. And the Delaria thing for me, is, I mean, obviously, I, I don't mind the player coming in. And I wouldn't have minded two years. I just don't like four years. because. And we talked about this on the Broadcasters Roundtable. And... They said, well, you know, if it doesn't, if the team's no good or whatever, he's a player you can move at the deadline. And I go, yeah, if you're on a two-year deal, you can move him at the deadline. On a four-year yeah. deal, I don't think you can move him at the deadline. It, the, the term that's left after this year, three years, would be too much for a team to take on. So I don't, I don't know that. Maybe you can. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe we'll see. I don't know. But, I mean, I think there's value with guys that hold accountability on the ice and, you know, I know people want to shit on. I saw Charlie kind of shitting on it in regards to Risto, but like we can't, you can't kind of laud the year that Travis Sanheim had and just continually shit on Ristolainen. Yeah, because they did find some chemistry, and I'm not saying that Rasmus Ristolainen was the reason why Sanheim was good. Sanheim was good because Sanheim was good, but part of the element of that execution and what he was able to do was the time that he played with Rasmus Ristolainen. So, you know, 
I know he's the guy that people just love to shit on. I should, I don't shit on him as much. I think he does have value. Does he make mistakes? Oh, fuck yeah. Okay, yeah, I mean, he overplays situations in physical moments at times and takes himself out of position and, and those things. But you got to see if he can be a net positive player overall. And when and part of that evaluation is the play of the guy that he plays with, his partner. Indeed, it's real easy to evaluate it because it's two guys. You know what I mean? Like on an offensive line, you go, okay, it's harder to evaluate because you have the mix of three. Yeah. Which is D partners, it's easy to evaluate. Is he good with this player? Like Provorov, simple. Was he good with Matt Niskanen? Absolutely. Why? Was he good with Justin Braun? Not so much. Was he good with Phil Myers or Nick Sealer or whoever else they were sticking up there? Kevin Connaught in the point. I don't know. You know? No. And see, so it's easy to measure the total value of a D pairing in difference to the total value of an offensive line because of, or an offensive line, not like football, but the three player center and two wings because it's three players. And look, I I remember talking to someone uh, with the organization uh, that he asked me to talk specifically on this. So now that I have the opportunity, I'll say it. He said, next time that you have a conversation about wrist aligning on one of your shows or in an article, Mention the fact that I believe these, he told me that their in-house analytics say that Sanheim played like 90% of his five on five minutes with wrist line in this last season mm-hmm. and how it direct, how in their mind and based on their in-house analytics, it directly correlates to, you know, having that partner. And obviously Sanheim's game has improved a lot on his own and he deserves that credit over the last two years. But I remember when he had a really good season in 1920, a really good regular season. He was really on the upswing. And then they got to the bubble against the Canadians and the New York Islanders, the Islanders specifically. And along with Phil Myers, he got absolutely steamrolled. I remember the puck would go in behind the net below the hash marks and that pairing got absolutely embarrassed. Yeah, that big muscle of those guys. I mean, they were a big, heavy team, right? Exactly. And... And I think you could even make that case in 2020, 2021, not to the same extent, but I do think that when you saw Sanheim playing with guys, whether it was like a Shane Gostaspear or Phil Myers who couldn't hold their own and Sanheim couldn't just play to his strength, which is moving the puck very well, I may add. I thought that, you know, there was always something left to be desired with Sanheim. This was the only season where I would watch Travis Sanheim play and I said, and I would say he found it. And I believe you said it, that they unlocked him. Yeah. He finally came to, came to be as, let's say, as good as a number three defenseman as you can get. That's how how I would rate Travis Sanheim. Almost like a Matt Carl on steroids at times. Mm-hmm. And Carl but I don't Bronger. <laughs> Exactly. And, but then again, I could have probably played with Bronger. Yeah. <laughs> but I just don't know how, like you just said, you can completely ignore the fact of what Ristolainen did because their play together was always simple. He would chase down the guy who carried the, the puck carrier. That was Ristolainen muscle him off the puck and shovel it over to Sanheim. And yep. you're right. When Ristolainen is pinned in his own end for an extended period of time and he has to defend, it ain't pretty a lot of the time. Yeah. He'll overplay it all the time. And I think that one of the thing with Ristolainen is that coaches see his size and his skill set, And they say, 
man, he really should be like this big stay at home defender, heavy D zone starts when that's just simply not his game. Yeah. And, but at the same time, like you said, how can you, you know, praise what Sanheim did while simultaneously shitting on Rista line and did when they played so much together? Yeah. 90% of the time. That's a crazy number. Wow. I think I could be wrong on that, but it was something in that, in that, yeah, uh, that feels about uh, right. You know, you know, the only time he didn't really play when Rista line towards the end of the year, didn't play out the string because he was hurt. Maybe it's 90% of the time that they were both in the lineup. Yeah. So that would make a lot more sense. Yeah. Wow. That's, inc- that's crazy. So, yeah, I'm, but the, you know, that's the convenient, easy narrative to just shit on Risto and, and we'll see how it goes this year as well. And it's a huge year for Sanheim. Big huge time. year. I mean, monstrous because I mean, it's UFA time. So, um, one quick question, Thomas LaCarte, LaCourte, the third. Checks in and says, who's going to be the backup goalie now? It's going to be a competition between Felix Sandstrom and, I mean, I, I'm not happy with this uh, at all. I mean, when you look at the, the backup goalie situation, do you have concerns as well here? I mean, I have I think concern- a total of 10 NHL games between the two, the two options. Look, I was one of the few people that wanted to see Sandstrom get a fair kick at the can even last year uh, towards the end of the season. Although I do understand that, you know, um, Carter Hart got hurt and I think Urson got hurt. Like they just had a shit ton of injuries at the goaltending position last year. But I think Sandstrom's another guy that's kind of shit or get off the pot time. And if you don't really have high expectations this season, which I believe is in the, is the case, why not see what Felix Sandstrom could bring you? And, you know, I was told back when they signed Fedotov in May that their plan was always to keep Felix Sandstrom to battle for that job and maybe probably end up with the Phantoms. But, I, you know, I know they signed Troy Grosnick. I know they said that he's going to, you know, battle for the backup job. Like, I think that's just all, you know, BS, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I don't think Grosnick is going to see NHL time this year, you know, barring injury. Yeah, but, I mean... But, like, look, Sandstrom, there's not a lot of big sample size, but he's a guy that was drafted, what, eight years ago now, if not a bit longer? Like, it's time to see what you have in this guy. And, look, do I think that they're going to be a spectacular goaltending tandem? No. But do I think that there's something to be said that he's going to, you know, be backed up, heart that is, by a guy who isn't just a bona fide backup in Brian Elliott or uh, Martin Jones? And that could is probably hungry to push for a legit NHL job. I think it could work, but yeah, all in all, it is a pretty dicey situation. Yeah, I mean, I was concerned when the plan was Fedotov, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Fedotov, Sandstrom, and without Krosnick. So I was concerned there as well. Um, and great stuff. We're going to be off next week because I'm going to be at the shore. We're going to double up one of the weeks in August as we get closer. When I was talking to Morgan, he said, I'm coming in the last week of August to start the skates. So we're not that far off, brother. Couple weeks, man. Maybe four or five weeks. Seventy-five days. How about that? It's going to be really interesting. But uh, yeah, as we would say here in Quebec, have fun at La Plage next. La Plage. Week. La Plage is the beach. The beach. La Plage. I love it. <laughs> uh, thanks for doing this. Check out Ann's stuff on the fourthperiod.com. Uh, wait, hold on. So we got a message here from this guy. He says Fedotov may still get out of military and come to Philadelphia, according to Ukrainian independent reporter, and doing his ru- training with Russian military in all seasons over the next two guys. Oh, Slava said that. I don't trust any of the information coming over there. I know Slav is. Um, all right. Ant, great stuff. Read Anthony's stuff at uh, the fourth period.com. I try to get everything in, brother. <laughs> Take it easy, buddy. Enjoy La Plage.
Laplage. There he is. <laughs> Anthony DeMarco from the fourth period.com. A lot of great conversation there. Hope everybody enjoyed it. And I know what you can enjoy. How about winning while you're watching? Get the Bet Parks app because it is awesome. Let me put the thing back up. There we go. Uh, get the Bet Parks app. It's easy to use, fun to use. You can bet on everything and anything when you're putting in your action, whether it's player performances, whether it's props, parlays, same game parlays, live in game betting, strikeouts, hits, home runs, you name it. When it comes to baseball, you can do it. Player performances, yards, rushing, throwing in football, and you're going to have college and pro right around the corner. You can bet golf, you can bet tennis, you can bet Formula One, where this weekend uh, the Formula One schedule goes to Hungary. Last race before the summer break, and then they return in about a month's time to Belgium and Spa-Francorchamps. So tons to bet on and a lot coming up, including futures. How about NFL futures, player performance futures? Do the same thing in the NHL. Futures on division, cup, player performances, you name it. Hoops, hockey, football, basketball, you name it. It's all there for you on the New Bet Parks app. And new and existing users can get a risk-free bet up to $750 just for using the promo code JASON750. That'll get you that risk-free bet up to $750. So pop that in there. New and existing users, Jason750, and uh, take advantage of this great offer. Terms and conditions to apply. Download the Bet Parks app today. Check it out. Get in on the action. If you need to be present in Pennsylvania or New Jersey, gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER. As I mentioned, we'll be off next week. We're going to double up one of the weeks in August. And I'll be down the shore next week. And so, everybody, enjoy the week. We'll be back. I'll catch you. If anything breaking happens, we will be popping in as well. But thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Leave us a five-star rating and review. We would appreciate that as well. And we'll talk to you next time on Bet Parks Presents Stick to Hockey Live. Have a great day, everybody.